It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. Are you kidding me? A no-hitter in the World Series? Who would have seen that coming? Here I was grumbling about the lack of scoring in the early innings. Christian Javier of the Houston Astros. Six no-hit innings followed by three no-hit innings by three different Houston relievers. Blew away to Philadelphia Phillies in the game last night, tying the series at two apiece. And, you know, the Phillies were on fire. Remember just one day earlier, those five home runs? It just goes to show you uh, when you run into good pitching, even the best hitters can be silenced. This hasn't happened since Don Larson of the New York Yankees threw that perfect game in 1956. I grew up hearing about that. A perfect game. No hits, no walks, no errors, no nothing. Of course, the era when a single pitcher went nine innings, as long as has passed. Uh, so it was the relievers who preserved uh, the Houston shutout, the Houston no-hitter for Javier. But wow, uh, that has certainly put this series on a different footing. And it's pretty exciting, even though not... Look, they they won 5 nothing, so they scored some runs. Meanwhile, the Kyrie Irving mess at the Brooklyn Nets has just been something to watch. No sooner do we kind of move on from Kanye West, who's still posting anti-Semitic stuff, than Kyrie Irving is promoting this film, Hebrews to Negroes, Wake Up Black America. Includes a made-up quote from Adolf Hitler. Uh, it says the Holocaust is false. Jews control the media. That seems to be in there all the time. And for days after praising this, Kyrie Irving either defended it and then he went silent. Well, now finally, in what was obviously a carefully negotiated compromise with the Anti-Defamation League, Kyrie Irving has pledged to donate $500,000 to fighting hate. In other words, here's a bunch of money to make this go away, honestly. And to put out a statement, which I'm sure was, you know, carefully hammered out. I oppose all forms of hatred and oppression and stand strong with communities that are marginalized and impacted every day. I am aware of the negative impact of my post toward the Jewish community and I take responsibility. I do not believe everything said in the documentary was true or reflects my morals and principles. I am a human being learning from all walks of life. Okay, so he doesn't apologize, but he puts out the statement and he pays the money in an effort to make this go away. This had become huge because, for example, TNT analyst and former basketball superstar Charles Barkley said Irving should be suspended for this sort of thing, especially he said... Uh, He should be suspended by the NBA commissioner, Adam Silver, who happens to be Jewish. I I don't care what ethnicity or religion the NBA commissioner is. I mean, this is just wrong. And the NBA, I guess, was probably involved in this too, but hasn't really taken on Kyrie Irving. Remember, this is the same guy who wouldn't get vaccinated and therefore could only play uh, in away games with the Brooklyn Nets because of the New York City COVID law at that time. So, 
you know, some people are saying he's too much trouble, the, the franchise should get rid of him. I don't know. I do know that this was hugely insulting and anti-Semitic, and I'm glad, even belatedly, uh, that he at least accepted responsibility and put his big money where his big mouth is. Turning out to some media stuff, on CNN, Jake Tapper, who's been holding down the 9 p.m. Eastern slot, during the final stretch of the midterms, is going back after next week's election to his regular four o'clock show. Uh, I believe that's his personal preference. He never, you know, people say, oh, his ratings weren't great. Well, he never got much in the way of a publicity buildup because he was just filling in. And CNN also saying, well, within days, we will announce the new 9 p.m. host because remember, that slot has been floating ever since Chris Cuomo was ejected from the network. Meanwhile, I gave my review the other day of the new CNN morning show. I botched the name. It's CNN This Morning. And that has received a huge publicity buildup. Don Lemon, Caitlin Collins, Poppy Harlow. Uh, And on Tuesday, when it debuted, it drew a grand total of 387,000 viewers. That's an extremely low number, 71,000 in the demo. That was even down from the average of the old show, New Day, for the month of October, which had been 404,000. So, you know, it's not fair to judge any program by the ratings on day one. Sometimes it takes a program time to find an audience, word of mouth, uh, big interviews, whatever. But given the buildup, it's got to be a disappointment. I mean, 387,000 viewers is just not what Chris Licht had in mind. But again, you know, I can think of a lot of shows that seem like a flop at the beginning, a couple months later, or six months later, um, they grew into something else. So I'm not going to prejudge. Hey, a couple new Fox polls are interesting in this respect. So Herschel Walker in Georgia, I talked about the other day, I guess it was yesterday I talked about the second abortion accuser who actually went on GMA, showed her face, talked about how he pressured her into having an abortion, took it to the clinic, paid for it in cash, Well, guess what? Uh, Herschel Walker has made that race tighter. Last month, he was down by five percentage points. Right now, it's a statistical tie, according to this Fox poll. Senator Raphael Warnock, 44%. Herschel Walker, 43%. So there's been a collective judgment there that either this is a long time ago, they don't believe the women, or they think he's changed, even though he continues to deny the accusations by both women. And he could win this race. And so you could say, well, maybe some of them, you remember some of the people who spoke out and said, I just want Republican control of the Senate. I don't care what Herschel Walker did. I don't care how many abortions he paid for. I want Republican control of the Senate. Well, let's contrast this now with the Fox poll in Pennsylvania, where half of those surveyed say that debate in which John Fetterman uh, performed so poorly as a recovering stroke victim is a factor in their vote. Now, 
In September, Fetterman led by four points. Now, he leads by three points over Mehmet Oz. I still think that's, I mean, that's basically within the margin of error. Oz could win. It may be moving in Oz's direction. But you have to allow for the possibility that just as Republicans don't want to deal with the personal misconduct questions involving Herschel Walker, that Democrats have either decided that John Fetterman's going to get a lot better, it's not fair to hold us against him, or they just want to win the seat, the same kind of mentality. They want Democratic control of the Senate, and they're willing to overlook Fetterman's admittedly awful performance in that debate. So if you're going to make raise that possibility about one side, you've got to raise it about the other. All right, let's go to story number one. President Biden, last night at the Capitol, giving a speech surrounded by flags about the danger to democracy. Now, I'll start with the critique of the speech. I think the only thing I can say that Joe Biden definitely did right is he ended the speech an hour before the World Series, because then there would have been very few people watching. They all would have gone over to Fox Broadcast, as it happens, which has the Phillies and the Astros. So he actually started out by talking about Paul Pelosi, his friend, Nancy's husband, and what an awful thing this was, um, and how lucky the speaker's husband is to have survived this horrible attack. And then he went from that to January 6th because of the Where's Nancy chant in the Capitol riot, and that's what David DePape, who's confessed to all kinds of things, including wanting to kidnap and kneecap the Speaker of the House, who wasn't there, of course, in San Francisco. Um, And Biden went on to talk about lies of conspiracy, giving rise to violence, no place for voter intimidation and political violence in America. He says, I know other things are important, economy, safety, healthcare, Medicare and Medicaid, but there's something else at stake, democracy itself. So at that point, he was trying to frame it as a presidential speech, not um, partisan, but calling on Americans to care about the preservation in our democracy. But then he got partisan, and there's no other way to put it. He talked about the defeated former president of the United States refusing to accept the outcome of the 2020 election. He refuses to accept that he lost. He is telling the big lie. That is an article of faith in the MAGA Republican Party. So now, instead of talking about the high ideals of preserving, protecting, and defending our fragile democracy, he's talking about Donald Trump and the big lie and Trump continuing to say that the election was stolen. Now, it is true, as Biden said, that in all the lawsuits and in all the assertions about 2020, um, Trump has never been able to demonstrate any proof that the election was stolen. But when he talks about the MAGA Republican Party, he always says, Biden says, well, this is a minority. But since Trump is the dominant figure in the party and polls show that most Republicans don't believe that Biden himself was elected fairly, it's really not necessarily a minority of the GOP. It's kind of the dominant strain in the GOP. So now 
he's moved from, you know, uh, high-minded talk about democracy to attacking Trump, to accusing Trump, you know, factually he's accurate in saying there's no evidence the 2020 election was stolen, but now attacking really a majority of Republicans or certainly a significant chunk of what he, of the Republican Party, what he calls the MAGA Republican Party. And then he tries to pivot to say that uh, some of these people are questioning elections now, meaning next week, and in the future. More than 300 election deniers are on the ballot. Some of those are Secretary of State candidates and others. Every one of those 300 election deniers who Joe Biden's talking about are Republicans. Then he says, this is not about me. And it may not be about him, but it's very much about his party, how his party does next week, and ultimately about 2024. And then he kind of went back to the more high-minded rhetoric, struggle for the very soul of America, an alarming rise in people condoning political violence or remaining silent. You can't love your country only when you win. Now, I don't think this speech changed five votes because all of the people who are already concerned about voter suppression, political violence, MAGA Republicans, election deniers, they're Democrats who are already going to, most of them, vote for the Democratic candidate, unless they happen to really like the Republican candidate or incumbent in their particular district. The Republicans are going to say, we've heard this all before. It's about the past. Uh, I want to know what this new Congress, these midterm elections, I want to know about my future and my family's future. And so I think it was just a tactical error. Of course, then you have independence, but a lot of polls showing that Independent women, even with, you know, abortion rights being an issue in every single state, uh, moving toward the GOP in a way that it's pretty evidence that we're going to see a Republican House next week, regardless of this speech. We may or may not see a Republican Senate, but the odds seem to be increasing. So you just flip to the channels afterwards. So MSNBC, Joy Reid is going on and on about he's Biden's right, big lie. And then she brings on Congressman Jamie Raskin, you know, who is a very partisan figure on the House January 6th committee. And he continues, he proceeds to say, you know, everything Biden said was right and democracy is at stake. It's on the ballot, Biden said. CNN kind of played it straight, had a reporter um, summarize and say that Biden has wanted to give this speech for weeks and then had sort of a mixed panel on. On Fox News, Jesse Waters said the only people, he's talking about January 6th again, the only people who care about that are some partisan Democrats and MSNBC. That's it. And then he proceeded to say, you know, if you want to make this election about Paul Pelosi, that's fine, but he's an illegal immigrant. And this is an example of crime um, and basically dismissed the president's argument. So Biden knows, and they've been pivoting way too late in my view, Biden and the Democrats 
understanding that all the big issues in polls are favoring the Republicans right now, the economy, inflation, and crime, they've been talking more about it. If Biden had a compelling speech to give, looking into the future, and he's made some of these points in defending his legislation, saying Republicans would take us backwards, uh, I'm going to save you from cuts to Social Security and Medicare, he would have given that. But I think Joe Biden, deep in his heart, wanted to give this speech. But it was the wrong speech six days before an election. It really does not move the needle because it's ultimately a partisan speech. It's dressed up as, you know, we all have to do our part. Every generation has to save democracy, has to vote for democracy, has to turn out for democracy. But you didn't have to scratch very much beneath the surface to realize that the president is really saying vote for Democrats in the midterm because all the people who are making an issue of voter suppression and the big lie and Donald Trump and January 6th and Paul Pelosi, you know, with some exceptions for many of the Republicans who, to their credit, have denounced the vicious attack that almost killed the Speaker's husband, are Democrats, the election deniers, Democrats. And so people who are concerned about their family's well-being, they're worried about the economy, they're scared about crime, whether it's justified or not. These are big issues that the Democrats should have had the wisdom to address much earlier in this cycle. They waited way too long. They put way too much of their chips on, a, on abortion rights, not to say that's not important. And so Biden may have wanted to give this speech. He may have felt it was his duty to give this speech. But six days out, I don't think the speech helped him politically at all. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. All right, number two. George Will, the longtime conservative columnist, for the Washington Post, is unloading on Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, but with a twist. He begins the piece by saying that Biden committed this terrible blunder when he was talking about the student debt relief that he issued by executive order. Right now it's tied up in the courts. And you would expect Will not to like that, but it wasn't the substance of it. Uh, that had Will concerned. It was Biden's description of it by saying there had been a vote on this. I'll quote from the piece. Biden was not merely embellishing his achievements. This is not just another of his verbal fender benders. There is no less than dismaying explanation for his complete confusion. What vote? Who voted? It is frightening that Biden does not know or remember what he recently did regarding an immensely important policy. He must be presumed susceptible to future episodes of similar bewilderment. He should leave the public stage on January 20th, 2025. And then he gets to the vice president. Will saying that transcripts of her verbal meanderings cannot convey their eerie strangeness. Here are her thoughts about broadband in Louisiana. The governor and I, and we were all doing a tour of the library here and talking about the significance of the passage of time, right? The significance of the passage of time. So when you think about it, 
There is great significance to the passage of time in terms of what we need to do to lay these wires, what we need to do to create these jobs. And there is such great significance to the passage of time that when we think about a day in the life of our children, dot, 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 she sounds, as the critic has said, like someone giving a book report on a book she has not read. Her style betrays a self-satisfied exaggeration of her aptitudes, lacking natural talent she needs to prepare, but evidently doesn't. Complacency and arrogance make a ruinous compound. But there's a reason that Will is saying all this, and that is he doesn't want Joe Biden and Kamala Harris to run again. And he doesn't want Kamala Harris to run if Joe Biden doesn't. And the reason is that this particular conservative pundit who left the Republican Party, you know, back in 2016, thinks the greatest danger facing the country is another Donald Trump presidency. And he makes the case that having the two incumbents on the ticket would practically ensure that. Regarding Biden and Harris, the National Democratic Party says George Will faces two tests of stewardship. Its imprimatur cannot again be bestowed on either of them. Biden is not just past his prime, even adequacy is in his past. And this is Harris's prime. In 2024, the Republican Party might present the nation with a presidential nominee whose unfitness has been demonstrated. After next Tuesday's sobering election results, Democrats should resolve not to insult and imperil the nation by doing likewise. Now, there's one thing that George Will doesn't get around to in this column, which is, if Biden doesn't run, if Harris doesn't run, who exactly are the Democrats going to put up who would have a pretty good chance of defeating Trump? And this is where you get into, like, Biden can make the case, even though he would be 82 at the time of the next inauguration, that he's the only one who has proven that he could beat Trump. On the other hand, you know, I mean, I think Will is saying what, he's expressing the kind of reservations that liberals privately harbor, but can't say so because it would seem disloyal to their party and to the president who did evict Trump from the Oval Office. But then you look at, you know, the field such as it is, it isn't like the Democrats have all of these great candidates. I mean, Gavin Newsom says he has no ambition to be president. Nobody believes that. Um, Pete Buttigieg and Elizabeth Warren. I mean, a lot of the people who've run before, Amy Klobuchar. I mean, you could see where all of them could be defined by Trump and the GOP you know, they'll, you know, nobody gets vetted like a nominee for president and all kinds of stuff would be dug up that would sow doubts about their experience. And maybe that makes it harder for them to defeat Trump. I'm not taking a stand on this, but Will has made up his mind. Joe and Kamala have to complete their service at the end of their first term. But that, of course, opens the door to this other question that Will doesn't really grapple with. All right, number three. This is a very insightful piece, I think, in The Atlantic. Has to do with Beto O'Rourke and Stacey Abrams. The two Democrats are among the country's best-known political figures. Better known, 
and this is true if you stop and think about it, than almost any sitting governor or U.S. senator. And they've become so well-known, not by winning big elections, but by losing them. After serving 10 years in the Georgia House, Abrams rose to prominence in 2018 when she unsuccessfully ran for the governorship, which she appears to be in the process of doing for the second time. O'Rourke served three terms as a Texas congressman before running unsuccessfully for the Senate, then the presidency. Remember that? It's on the cover of Vanity Fair. I was born to do this. And then, you know, he didn't even make it very far. Uh, and now they're both running again. O'Rourke for governor, Abrams for governor. They are perhaps the two greatest exponents of a peculiar phenomenon in American politics, that of the superstar loser. It's a great phrase. They've both become superstars, but they're known primarily for losing. And... They're both going to lose again. I feel, I'm gonna, you know, I don't like to make predictions, but not going out on a limb here to say neither one is going to be elected governor in either Georgia or Texas. Now, the piece goes on to say the country's electoral history is littered with superstar losers. Sarah Palin parlayed a VP nomination into a political commentary gig, book deal, some uh, reality TV ventures, the landslide defeats that Barry Goldwater and George McGovern suffered long ago, turned them into ideological icons. But Atlantic says, we're talking about people who became national stars in the course of losing a state-level race. When you stop and think about it, that's pretty amazing. Now, what's changed in modern times? Online fundraising platforms give even state-level candidates the ability to draw support from and build a following from donors across the country. And candidates have other tools, You know, never before could a state-level candidate uh, use cable TV, podcasts, social media, and both Stacey and Beto are good at social media. Uh, He's good at viral moment. For example, when he interrupted Greg Abbott's uh, press conference after the horrifying Uvalde shootings um, and started heckling the governor, really. Even when the campaign ends, nobody could stop you from posting. So while these two particular Democrats have been helpful to their party, in the opinion of Atlantic Magazine, the golden age of superstar loserdom is closely tied uh, to our current era, which is weak parties and strong partisanship. I mean, look at the rise of AOC on the left and Marjorie Taylor Greene On the right, vilification of the opposition allows challengers to especially despise candidates to quickly become household names. Even in extreme long shot races, donors have shown a willingness to pour vast amounts of money into these boondoggles. Amy McGrath, for example, spent about $90 million losing to Mitch McConnell. Jamie Harrison raised $130 million in his Senate race and fared only slightly better. When O'Rourke ran against Ted Cruz, he raised $80 million, most of any Senate candidate in history, all to no avail. And, by the way, the piece says that 
they are able to sort of frame their losses as moral victories because of the folks they're taking on. Now, for the record, in this current cycle so far, Beto O'Rourke has raised over $76 million, probably to lose, again, for governor of Texas. Stacey Abrams has raised $85 million in what looks to be a losing bid for governor of Georgia. So they're very good at raising money, you know, because of the, they get so much publicity from, let's just say, a national media that likes to be dazzled by candidates they view as charismatic. I mean, you, it would be harder, I think, to imagine this happening on the Republican side because they get, you know, these puffy profiles. I mentioned the Vanity Fair cover as just one example. So they're very good at raising money. They raise all this money using all the tools available. They become stars on social media. But you would think that after the first big loss, the, some of the luster, some of the sheen would be taken off these candidacies. But no, they are superstar losers, says The Atlantic. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Story number four from The Hollywood Reporter, which broke this story. You'll remember, I'm sure, the name Les Moonves. Les Moonves um, was one of the most powerful people in media. He was the head of CBS, which includes not just the television network, but the radio network and uh, other subsidiaries. He was a long-time, talk about superstars, superstar in the media. Everybody knew the name Les. You know, I've interviewed Les Moonves, very smart guy, charismatic. Uh, And then he had this fall from grace, shall we say. He was kicked out of CBS back in 2018 over allegations of sexual misconduct. And then CBS announced that there were grounds based on its own uh, retention of two outside law firms to terminate Moonves for cause. So he's completely banished from his former job. Now, uh, there has been a probe by the New York Attorney General, Tish James, into these misconduct allegations. And now Paramount has agreed to pay an additional seven and a quarter million dollars to shareholders to resolve this investigation by the New York AG. And Moonves himself has to pay two and a half million dollars because there was a class action suit against CBS and CBS executives and board members that said shareholders were, were, were misled about how the company handles these workplace sexual harassment complaints. So that litigation has been settled. There's a filing now with the SEC saying, we reached an agreement with plaintiffs to settle the lawsuit for 14 and three quarter millions of dollars, which will be paid by the company's insurers. Yeah, nice work if you can get it. The settlement includes no admission of liability or wrongdoing. It was approved on a preliminary basis last May and now has to be finally accepted by Letitia James. 
So this has been in the works, but this the new part has to do with Moonves himself having to dig into his, you know, considerable deep pockets to kick in money for the settlement. And Paramount having to pay even more money, uh, you know, they can go through the fiction of, oh, we're not admitting or denying any wrongdoing. But you know what? You don't pay nearly $15 million if you think you didn't do anything wrong. And so that is the news on that front. And number five, you're all familiar by now with the Washington Commanders team, formerly known as the Redskins, and its owner, Daniel Snyder, who has already been removed from day-to-day operations of the team because of a long history, I mean a long history, of a toxic culture, of allegations by cheerleaders, of being mistreated sexually and otherwise. I mean, it has just been a mess. So Dan Snyder and his wife, Tanya, the new news now is that they are considering, they're the co-CEOs, they're considering selling maybe the entire franchise. And they've retained, team says in a statement, uh, the Bank of America to do that. Now, oh, the Snyders remain committed to the team, all of its employees and blah, blah, blah putting the best product on the field, setting the gold standard. Yeah, the gold standard. The gold standard, my butt, for workplaces in the NFL. Now, there's two ways they can do this. They can sell the whole team, which I think many of the owners in the league would actually like and just get them off the field, so to speak. Or they can sell a minority stake. The challenge of selling a minority stake is somebody's got to pay a lot of money to be a minority owner of of this NFL team but they have no power to control it because they're just a minority partner. Forbes has estimated that, uh, according to this Washington Post piece, the commanders are worth $5.6 billion. Wow. No one's really sure what Snyder's going to do. Uh, you know, I have my own Dan Snyder story. Um, went to, uh, no, I ran into him at a party, I've been to a couple of the Redskins games uh, and got to know him a little bit, ran into a party where he was roaring drunk and he was just sloshed and he, and he was um, trashing the Washington Post for its, what he saw as its negative coverage of the team. And I, you know, I tried to carry on a conversation with him. He was so plastered, it was kind of hard to do. But this is long before, you know, anybody, I mean, people have always had complaints about any team and any team owner, but long before a lot of this stuff came out in various investigations. So the thing is, if Snyder sells the whole team or even minority shares, uh, three quarters of the other team owners would have to approve that. I don't think that'd be that hard to get. But it would come at a time when Dan Snyder is under investigation. Let me do that again. But it comes at a time when Dan Snyder is having the hell investigated at him, under investigation by the National Football League, a House Oversight Committee, and the Attorneys General of D.C. and Virginia. If you think that doesn't taint the situation, you don't understand how the world works. 
So I don't know if this is going to lead to anything, but you know, usually when you hire an investment bank, which is not cheap, you're serious about trying to do this. So it is possible that the NFL will be rid of one Daniel Snyder, but that remains to be seen. Well, I wasn't planning on ending with a sports story, but it's so much more than a sports story. I mean, it's a story of power, of jealousy, rivals, investigations, sexual misconduct allegations, toxic atmosphere allegations. And that's why I think it's a national story, but probably a little bit more interest for those of us here in the Beltway bubble. Appreciate, as always, your time on this podcast. Hope you subscribe. I mentioned yesterday Amazon Music. You can now go there and get the ad-free version of this podcast. That would be nice. All you get to hear is me and the buzzers. We'll see you tomorrow with more BuzzMeter. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.